Hello, everybody. Today I have Rob Lohman with me today, chiming in from Colorado, one of my favorite places. Welcome, Rob. Hey, hey, welcome. Uh, welcome. I mean, thank you. I was going to say welcome to Colorado, but that's a later date, right? So thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, it, it's so gorgeous out there. And actually, a big part of my alcohol-free community, there's quite a few people out there uh, in my alcohol-free community. So love it. Cool. Anyway, this is supposed to be about you and, and sharing your wisdom and a little about you. So um, why don't you introduce yourself and take us wherever you'd like us to go? Sure. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, well, I'm out here just outside Denver, Colorado. Love it out here. It's a beautiful day. And it's hard to believe it's... Uh, like today in the day of the year, it's so beautiful that I'm like, man, where's the snow? When are we going to get the the action of winter? But I can hold off on that for a little bit. But yeah, I love it out here. I mean, I'm married, I have two kids, two dogs, I got a little puppy down below my feet here and taking a little rest. And they're kind of my podcasting buddies. So uh, always trying to surround myself around good people and good animals. So <laughs> I love it. But yeah, I mean, I mean, so sobriety started June 8th, 2001. So it's been 21 years since I touched substances but we can talk today about the challenges of recovery because it's not you know hunky-dory rainbows and butterflies and stuff when we put down the substances it's all about mental health and what do we what do i need to do to make sure that i'm on the right track every single day and doing the things i need to do so my spiritual conditioning is definitely in the, going in the right direction so but rob you have 20 something years what do you need that for hey, you that, know what you're right cured? yeah that's exactly yeah, that's exactly right. You know what? In fact, I think I'm so cured that, uh, no, I <laughs> I had coffee with a buddy of mine this morning that literally just got out of ICU. And, you know, people know what you and I do, right? And we're here to help people, but there's so much shame and stuff that prevents people from reaching out for help. So I just want to give people permission right now to be messy, reach out for help. And if you're cool with it, I want to give your listeners a free gift real quick, and then we can jump back into the story. Does that sound good? I'm cool with it. All right. So if y'all want to, I encourage you to go to freerecoverybook.com and just get some resources there. Freerecoverybook.com. Whatever is on that domain name will change over time. And currently you'll really love what's there. So just go check it out. It's got a lot of my story, a lot of tips, tools, and stuff to help you and your family break for the cycles of addiction. So there's something for your people, Bobby. Thank you so much, Rob. We appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're a big community helping each other. That's it. We have to, right? We just have to. I, w- I was driving back from Florida this week and I was thinking about recovery as a whole and the whole concept of we have basically two choices in life. We could be in addiction, which to me isn't living, or we could be alive and living, but not wasting it. Like to me, it's very black and white, like that whole middle where we're not taking care of ourselves and doing all that stuff. Like what the hell's the point then? That's what leads people to use. Um, so I I was just thinking like, we all just need to have a beautiful life. And I could tell that you've created a beautiful life and I'd I'd love for you to share, uh, your wisdom on that. And and yeah, it's been, it's definitely been a journey. I mean, I look at, uh, kind of what it was like as a kid and it was so innocent and pure and just fun and goofy. And I was that goofy, funny kid that just loved everybody and loved everything. And I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. It was, I lived with my, you know, like my aunts, uncles, grandparents, everybody was there. So that's why even now in my life at 51 years old, I'm really big on community 
especially for people in recovery. Right. But I, I was just, I've been thinking a lot about just my childhood and I have this like really beautiful picture of my daughter. This was years ago, but she's just like this innocent, cute, fun kid that just loves life. And in recovery, it's, we can get back to that kid, but addiction robs us of that. Right. And our choices rob us of our potential. And, but I mean, yeah, I was just happy to go lucky kid growing up in Indiana, moved to Texas in fourth grade. And just didn't know anybody. And those are hard transitions, right? Of just knowing everybody and having family and then going there and you move to Texas and people talk really weird in Texas. <laughs> they say y'all and all that stuff. And, but man, just insecurity started coming up as a kid and, you know, elementary school and middle school. And I started drinking at 14 and that was kind of my, my relief. I didn't have anything crazy that happened in my life or traumatic or anything like that, but just, Little things like they call it little T trauma, right? In your life and big T is like, whatever, big T, little T, heck man, things happen. And we start telling ourselves different messages about ourselves. And so over time, I just kind of became this chameleon fitting in with every different group in middle school and high school while drinking and partying. And you just kind of, at least for me, I just kind of lost who I was and just didn't know who I was, but alcohol gave me a lot of comfort. It kind of leveled the playing field with people. And you always, I don't know about you, Bobby, but I always had those worse off friends that drank worse than I did. So I didn't look as bad, but we're just, we're, I just became a master manipulator and, and just really lost. Didn't know who I was until I, I probably say, I really didn't know who I was until I went to prison in recovery. Wow. Now, does your family have like, were you in a drinking environment or all of this really stems from all the change of your environment? You know, I didn't, I was not aware of how bad addiction was in my family. Okay. So there was the lack of awareness of people in my family, aunts, uncles, or people that suffered from addiction and had collateral damage from their addictions. But just as a kid, it just wasn't talked about. So I didn't know that I, in a sense, came from a line of people that suffered from substance abuse. And that's kind of why now my kids know the history of our family. I said, look, I'm going to keep my eye out for you. I'm not going to be a helicopter parent at all, but I'm going to be keeping my eye out for certain things going on because what I think people think is that Great-grandpa Billy was an alcoholic. Grandpa was an alcoholic. Dad's an alcoholic. Uncles are alcoholics. Aunts are alcoholics. Cousins are alcoholics. So I'm going to become an alcoholic. And gosh darn it, my kids are too. Yeah. I'm like, hell no. That stops now. And so, uh, but again, there wasn't alcohol. There wasn't abuse of alcoholism in my family, my direct family. But, you know, I mean, my... I, I definitely had aunts and uncles and stuff like that that had their struggles for sure and, and grandparents. You mentioned prison, I think. Do you want to share what maybe how the story unfolded and how you got there? And I forgot to ask you before I press record, like, is there anything off limits or you an open book? No, I'm, I am an open book. In fact, I'm such an open book that I recently wrote the addiction intervention book, which has my story in a couple of chapters of the book. So go pick a copy up on Amazon. All right, here we go. Um, <laughs> a little plug there. But so I got sober in 2001 and we can get back to that. Right. But I went to prison in 2013. Yeah, oh, wow. exactly. So 
getting sober and finding recovery is not just about the substances. It's about the mental health parts about figuring out who we are and along the way and getting those foundational things put in place. And so for me, yeah, I went to prison uh, 12 years into my recovery with no substances. So I haven't touched alcohol or drugs in 21 years, but got out of prison officially living back home with my family in 2015. Wow. That's a very powerful point. It is. And here's why. <laughs> because, see, I was single when I got sober. Getting sober was the easy part. I mean, I tried to kill myself the night before I got sober, found the rooms of recovery. People are happy-go-lucky and loving life. So I'm like, I'm in. And we can backtrack to the story of leading up to that later. But, but in recovery, again, I was single. And so I ended up getting married in 2006. My son was born in 2007. I started a launched a business as an entrepreneur in 2008. My daughter was born in 2010. So all these new things, these new pressures, right? And I didn't, when I got sober, I didn't do counseling or therapy. I just did step work. But there were a lot of underlying things of my history of self-sabotage, my lack of confidence in who I was. And so as a husband, father, business owner, these insecurities started coming in. And so what I thought I had really deep faith was really shallow faith because I never really invested in growing the roots of my faith. And I'm, my faith stems from a Christian belief. And, and I just never really invested in what does that really mean for me? So I was just doing life, right? And insecurity started coming up. I felt like I was failing as a husband, failing as a father, Failing as a business guy. So I quit going to recovery meetings. I quit going to Bible studies. I quit doing all the stuff that was good for me. Right. And then I got in my own little mental island. And over a while, there's only one person on the island, which was me. Because I isolated myself. See, I would go and I still had a bad gambling addiction, which was going on, which I wasn't talking about. So even though I wasn't drinking or drugging, I was still gambling and moving pieces around in my life and living an impulsive, impulsive, reactive life. And I would just react to whatever stimulus was in front of me, which it wasn't healthy. I was just a hot mess. And I was dealing with suicide ideation again, um, in which I was dealing with right before I got sober and attempted suicide. So I was, you know, um, my kids were two and four at this time. I've been married several years and, but I just was not healthy. I was living on energy drinks, coffee, sugar, not sleeping well, self-loathing. So I was a recipe for really disaster happening. I just never knew when the bomb would go off. Wow. I, that's a very colorful uh, description. So, well, you, I want you to tell me in the way that you want to tell me. Um, yeah. Let's what happened? That. Yeah. So here it was. So, I mean, I was, um, Again, I believe a lot of our battle in recovery or just life goes on in our brain of the lies we tell ourselves or the truths that we tell ourselves. And at some point, we got to believe one or the other, <laughs> either believe the lies or believe the truths. And I started believing the lies about how much I failed and I sucked and look at yourself and you're going bankrupt and like all these things, right? You're, you're fighting with your wife. 
you know, blah, 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 all the stuff. Right. And, and it just really culminated one night in February, 2012. And, and I kind of relate this visual to, because people like visuals, right? So imagine your brain is a, as a waffle and you're able to compartmentalize every aspect of your life. Okay. You can compartmentalize work and marriage and being a parent and just anything going on, like a, 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 a youth leader, a Bible study leader, whatever you do. Right. And, and I can turn them off and turn them on. I can open the lid and go into that little section of the waffle and I can close it and I forget about the rest and I'm dealing something else. So that, that was like my life. I was a, a big waffle in my brain, but this evening on February 15th, 2012, I believe like my, my waffle brain turned into a, a pancake and everything just bled together. Mm. Right. And so my breakdown manifested itself in a mental blackout one night and I lit some boxes on fire on my covered patio in a townhouse row. Right. And nothing planned. It wasn't this whole thought out thing. Like if I do a, then B will happen. It was just like F it life crashed in and, and it was a mess. I mean, it was a huge fire in our townhouse. Nobody got hurt. Thank God. None of that just property damage and lots of emotional damage. And you don't remember doing it. No, it was, it was, so what, so things that led up to that, right. Was, you know, we, and, and I relate all these back because they're important because there's little triggers that happen. And, and I believe a lot of our lives are driven by the subconscious, which is not an excuse at all. But when you're in survival mode and you're in turmoil and you're just operating from your, as they say, the autonomic nervous system in your brain, yeah. sometimes you don't even know what the hell is going on in your life. You're just going. It's kind of like you drive from point A to point B and you get to point B and you don't remember any of the scenery in between A and B. You right. just got there somehow, right? And that's kind of the way I was. I was just kind of on this kind of autopilot of anxiety, depression, just self-destruction, all this stuff going on. And so I had watched a movie this evening about a guy that just never measured up. Right. And then there's this big redemption part to the movie and it's a beautiful end of the movie, seven days in utopia. But I related to the negative stuff, Mm. which which reinforced how I felt about myself. Right. And so in that moment of setting boxes on fire, there's no vivid memory of that at all, but it happened. And so after I realized, go ahead. No, you keep going. All right. I would say after I realized what happened, you know, I slept, shut, slept, I shut the sliding glass door and just ran upstairs and ripped my wife out of bed. And she grabbed my two-year-old daughter out of her crib and I grabbed my four-year-old son out of his bed and we run downstairs and it's February in Colorado. It had recently snowed. And so my wife is literally getting their boots on and winter jackets and there's still a fire outside in our covered patio. And it was just a fire. It wasn't like, we didn't feel like our life was in imminent danger. Right. But we called fire department and they were all there and I'm getting my neighbors out of their townhouse. And, and then we finally leave our, leave our front door of our townhouse and right as we did, the whole back draft like caught and blew the back patio up and fire rushed in and just literally just burnt everything inside of our townhouse almost. Mm. And again, thank God nobody got hurt or any of those kind of things. Right. And um, but the addict mind kicks in and so I got to cover this up real quick. And so I made up a story. 
which oddly enough was confirmed the next day by my neighbors of some other stuff going on in the neighborhood. So I'm thinking, okay, I can get away with this, but I'm really in survival cover-up mode because I know I'm going to be in trouble, right? I'm trying to protect my family and myself and just going into this state of lying and manipulating the circumstances. So long story short, I ended up confessing a couple of weeks later to what happened to my wife shortly after I confessed to authorities what had happened and they didn't arrest me. They wouldn't even let me turn myself in. It was the weird, it, there's a lot of weird stuff that happened with the, you know, the West Metro fire district here in Colorado, but I had an attorney and they just would not open the door for us to walk through and turn ourselves in. Hmm. So I kind of fell through the cracks. I think long story short, six months later, I get arrested on 19 felonies, 13 misdemeanors, my wife is going through her own thing of like, do I stay with this guy? Is he a psychopath? Like what happened? And just came to the conclusion that I got lost along the way and I just broke down and screwed up, you know, and so there's a lot more legit- to it than that. Was there legitimate charges between when you set the fire and when you got picked up, there was a lot of bad things happening. No, there were no charges yet. I didn't get, so what happened was, So my wife was listed as a victim in the case because obviously, you know, I set a fire and they didn't know I did it yet, but there was like danger, right? And all my neighbors. And so there was this, everyone was listed, my neighbors and my wife on this, like a protection order. So my wife gets something in the mail on that Friday of uh, just at the, it was like December 4th, I think it was, I forget the exact date, but so she gets something in the mail And I call my attorney and he goes, get ready because they're going to arrest you in the next 24 to 48 hours. So I knew they were coming. But the weird thing was, Bobby, they I went to Texas in June because I was under investigation. Right. I I called the authorities, said, hey, I'm going to Texas because I'm going to go down there. One of my mentors is dying. I'll be in Texas. And I just they knew where I was all the time. But just some weird things happened. And I, and I feel like what happened was they were aware that a lot of people knew I set the fire. A lot of my community knew that I did it, just my supportive community, right? And if that ever got out to the news, that would make them look really bad six months later, mm. not letting my neighbors know I did it. You know what I mean? So there was just a lot of crazy stuff. But ultimately, God's in control of all this. We turned it over to him. I get arrested. I was out the next day on bond. From a hundred thousand dollar bond that got reduced to twenty five grand, a total miracle. And then eight months later, I'm arrested, or I'm, I go to my sentencing hearing, looking at two years of work release to fifty six years in prison. Now, I'm not drinking or drugging, right? I went to psychiatrist shrinks, all this stuff afterwards. I figured out what happened, and I could backtrack it and look where I started slipping away. And then I ended up getting sentenced to thirteen years in prison in two thousand thirteen. And um, God got me out in 10 and a half months and 11 months in a halfway house. And all the while, my wife stayed with me. We continue to work through stuff today as collateral damage of that. But while I was in prison, I figured out who I was. What's my faith really all about? Do I believe for me what the Bible says? And I do. And so I just really was able to secure who Rob Lohman is and my faith and what God says about me is true and I do my best to not let any of the lies penetrate my brain anymore and and lie to me. I was wondering 
if you thought that it served a purpose, like in your recovery or spiritually, and, and you kind of already answered that. I lost my whole train of thought. This is so freaking like I'm on the edge of my seat kind of <laughs> training or yeah. So well, there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of nuances to it, right? Of you know, recovery and prison and marriage and just, I mean, all the stuff that has to come back together to be whole again, but it's, it's a, been a process. Well, that's what was, was curious to me. So you're in there. Do you recognize at that point because some time, Oh, that was my question. It's an important one. So you're in recovery because you keep, well, and I don't, I haven't clarified this with you. Are you in recovery or are you just not using throughout this, this part? Um, like leading up to prison or what? Well, because it sounded like you weren't going to meetings and stuff and you weren't like participating in your recovery. Is that a true statement? Yeah. Well, I was also had a, my gambling addiction is I had a bad gambling addiction that was running awry. And mm -hmm. so that was a big part of the factor of what happened with the impulsivity, reactivity, you know, all the stuff going on in my life. I can look back at that now, now that I understand gambling addiction and process addictions and dopamine and neurotransmitters and all that stuff I know now I can look back then I was just in survival mode and I was you know I'd, I'd run off to the casino to try to you know take 400 bucks when I'd argue with my wife to just earn make a bunch of money and I was in these delusional things of like well yeah like that's gonna get you out of the hole right or buying a whole book of scratch tickets and scratching them in my office like I'm gonna hit it big and so there was definitely a, a disconnect from logic to what was going on, but I was such a hot mental health mess that I wasn't thinking straight in a lot of areas of my life at that time. Well, I think what I was curious about is as you're going through this, as you're in prison, are you like, do you know, do you have the voice in the back of your head saying, like you said it clearly is God's plan. Do you have that voice there? Are you aware that, okay, this sucks but there's a reason like, yeah. could you feel that in the moment or is it upon reflection? Oh no, I could feel it in the moment. Okay. I mean, after the fire happened and I, cause the cool thing was that, I mean, after it happened, I had a lot of support. So pastor Don McCreevy took me under his wing over at Foothills Bible church and started walking me through this um, victory over the darkness about winning the battle of your mind and not believing the lies. And so I was able to really step into who I really am and see how I got to the guy that did what he did moment. But I just really had to pour into like, who am I really? Because I lived my life from these external things that defined who I was, or I, I allowed to define who I was. And if those things were out of balance and I was out of balance, if they liked, if you know what I mean? So it was these external things, there was no internal like connection to who is really Rob Lohman. So when I was in prison, I mean, I read, I studied, I was intentional. I wrote, I journaled like crazy. I, you know, just did everything I could to really figure out who am I without, and this sounds bad, like the distraction of family and marriage and work and kids. I could just figure out who I was while I was intentional with staying in touch with my wife and kids and I mean, my kids' school sent me their homework so I could do their homework with them on the phone. And I would write notes and stuff to my wife. And I got like 40 birthday cards on my birthday sent to me in prison. So I still had a good community of people. 
it was just they were confused too. Like, what happened to Rob? Like, that's not the guy we know. Right. So I had to take this worst mistake of my life and turn it into the best opportunity for my life to go forward. Right. So you stopped drinking in 2001. When did the gambling really start ramping up? Oh, when I was 14 and 15. Oh, so we were still gambling. I still, it wasn't crazy in early recovery, right? I mean, I wasn't going to casinos and doing all that kind of stuff, but a lot of my gambling would ramp up when life got stressful, Mm. right? If my wife and I were in conflict, I would go to casinos and escape if, and I would, again, buy books or scratch tickets and just sit in my office. So when, when life was stressful and I was not earning enough money and things were really like environmentally, my gambling would kick up. If things were going great and I was making a bunch of money and things were fine, I wasn't even thinking about it. I would just buy a scratch ticket here and there. So the, when the stress ramped up, my gambling ramped up. So it was a coping mechanism. Oh, heck yeah, definitely. So are you still gambling? No, no, that was, so I, so I tried, I tried, uh, I tried GA, right? But there just weren't enough meetings here in Denver. And I'm a face-to-face kind of guy. And it just, it just, that just didn't work out, right? And and that was an excuse. Right. That I was that was an excuse. And but I needed something more consistent close to home because it was just, I mean, I, I wasn't gonna drive 30 minutes to a GA meeting, right? But AA wasn't working for me. And I'm not, and I know people say press radio and films, but it was just my season of my addiction. It wasn't appropriate. So I ended up going to celebrate recovery at our church. And that actually helped me break the cycle of the gambling addiction. I've been wanting to dive into that. I haven't had a celebrate recovery. So through my lens, I believe that recovery is possible for everybody, but I don't think the roads are the same for anybody. No, you're right. And and my foundation's built on 12 step, but since then I've learned so much more. And, and the premise of taking what you need and leaving the rest instead of that just being in the room i use that with life now to to do my recovery um but celebrate i don't know much about so yeah. do you mind kind of diving into that a little deeper for us yeah and in in, in early, my early recovery from substances celebrate recovery wasn't a fit for me because i could not relate to the person that maybe ate a box of oreos and they felt guilty about it you know, I'm like, I don't get that. Like I was, a, I was an alcoholic, like I partied, you know, and stuff. So I couldn't relate to people that just were dealing with life issues. It was for me in early recovery it was about alcohol. So this season of my life, I realized as I was growing a little bit deeper in my faith as well, that struggle is struggle. It doesn't matter if you're masturbating 10 times a day or going to the casino five times a day or drinking a case of beer a day or buying stuff on Amazon and taking it back to Kohl's to ship it back the next day. I mean, Addiction is addiction. And that's why I realize is, you know, uh, Celebrate Recovery talks about hurts, habits, and hangups, right? And so the great thing about what I liked about it was that, you know, I love Christian music. That was a huge part of my early recovery. And they start their meetings off with worship music and just getting into, like, just letting outside kind of go and focusing on what you're dealing with that day. And then people would break out in groups of life issues and addiction issues. Right. I'm like, well, that was kind of cool. It was different. Right. So you could choose where were you in that day of like your season of that day. And the, the testimonies were powerful. So for me, it was, it was step work. Right. And 
kind of like AA, right? There's step work, there's sponsors, there's stuff like that, but it's all from a Christian perspective, which is what I needed at the time. In early recovery, I just didn't. I just was happy to be free, and I just. But I was in a season I wanted to grow, and I was, I was scared of the gambling I was doing because I realized how the mental obsession was so much greater than the actual act of scratching a ticket. Yeah. And I would, and the realization came this one night, and I was, um, some, some in. I'm going through the step work. It was a great group of. It started out with about 20 guys, and then narrowed down to probably 10 of us that went through the whole. 13 months together and we'd go through the book work every week and, and it was great, but I would still see myself or I would actually still be going to the, to a seven 11 to buy scratch tickets, you know, and one of the guys in my group said, sorry about that. I drink, take a drink of water. Um, we were sitting in a meeting one night and I was still waiting tables and building my recovery business. And he said, Loman, they sell coffee at Dunkin' Donuts also. <laughs> so are you going to 7-Eleven for the coffee? Because I, I do like 7-Eleven's coffee. I just do. And But I would buy a sleeve of Oreo cookies, and I'd buy some scratch tickets. And he goes, so when I started doing this one simple tool that he just threw at my face, I was like, wow. So I went to go get coffee at places that didn't sell scratch tickets. And that worked. You know, and that one little tool helped me out a lot. So at the end of this, it was the end of the last day of December, 2018. I said, I just want to go through 2019 and not gamble. I was like, all right. And so, you know, I don't even think about going to casinos anymore or anything. And those thoughts are just gone, right? There have been fleeting thoughts of uh, moments of like buying a scratch ticket here and there, you know, but the, the big crux of it was casinos and an escape that I would have and just go without telling my wife and I would just disappear. Yeah. So I, I found a lot of freedom, but again, celebrate recovery for the season of my life worked to help me get through, but it, through gambling. And, and again, it was realizing the mental obsession. Like I would literally be sitting at home at, do you ever, do you ever get Redbox movies, Bobby? Like go to Redbox. No, but okay. I know what you mean. We still have a DVD player in our house. So, um, so I'll go to Redbox and I would rent a movie. And I remember one night in particular, it was, I think, I think they were due at 9.30 and it was 9.10. And I had this DVD and I had to replace it. I had to get it back because I didn't want to pay another $1.69 or whatever it was. And I got frustrated with my son or daughter. I was like, stop. I have to go get this movie back because I'm not paying another $1.69 or whatever. It would have cost me that in gas probably. But what I really wanted to do was go to the gas station next door and buy scratch tickets. Yeah. And it came out sideways. I remember just getting frustrated with one of my kids, but it wasn't about the dollar 69. It was about getting out of the house. I didn't even return the movie that night. I just went and got scratch tickets. And I was like, man, whoa, that just blew my mind away. And that was a big realization for me of one of the other catalysts that said, you need to stop this like now. And so and again, we've had tough times since then too. And it, it, alcohol, drugs isn't the answer. You know, going to casinos not the answer. And uh, but gambling's more about the bet. It's you know, I used to like to lose in the sixth sense because then I had to scratch myself, like scratch to get myself back to the top. So there, there's a twisted part. But process addictions, man, like 
food, sex, gambling, shopping, gaming, they're all tied to the same part of the brain. And people don't realize that. So it's been a, there's always stuff to work on. Holy cow. Like, I I don't think I'll have to stop working on stuff this side of heaven. I'm just going to, you know, there's always things to work on in our life, but, but I don't want to let any of my life go to waste. That's why I do podcasting and interventions and coaching is to walk people through these seasons and say, look, man, you may have a kick butt early recovery, but what are you going to do if you lose that job, you know, and then you don't have the coping skills for it. So it's all about coping skills and counseling, coaching, community, all that good stuff. So you just described, you, you kind of glazed over it um, about what you do. So why don't you share a little about what you do and, and some of your strategies for helping people, um, your methodologies. I don't know if I'm using the right word, but, but you just said interventions, coaching, like, do you want to dive into that a little? Sure. Yeah. Um, the core message of anything I do is about restoring hope, identity, and purpose to people's lives. So whether I'm doing a podcast episode with somebody, I want to bring that out of people, right? Or because I have two podcast shows that I do now. One's called Beyond the Bars Radio, and one is called Addiction, Freedom, and Faith. And it's stories just like you're doing, right? To give people hope and encouragement. And then in the intervention world, again, that's why I just wrote this recent book, The Addiction Intervention Book, because there's a lot of ways to help somebody. There's not one way, at least in my opinion, in my experience, there's not one way to help somebody break the cycle of addiction. The only thing they can do is take action, right? So families will call me in like a major crisis and say, I got to get my loved one help. And even before we were just doing this, I was talking to a brother of a brother and, you know, an ex-wife or a wife calls me up and there's just chaos happening, like mental health stuff and and insanity going on they don't understand it at all and to them it's a crisis but we have to slow the train down a little bit and say is this really a crisis or just a moment right and figure out what's the proper thing to help the family and their loved one break this cycle because if the loved one doesn't get any help at all some people just toss the family aside and say well they don't want help i can't help you i'm like wait a minute what about you and and it's almost like this pause if they've called around other places and they talk to me, it's almost like this pause happens. Like, well, what do you mean? What about me? It's like, if your loved one doesn't get help at all, I, I can't guarantee results or anything, but what about you? What are you willing to do for yourself? And I love that question. Cause it, it stops them for a minute. Like people usually don't ask about me. So it's a family, it's a family deal. So, People will call and I just have to assess what do we need to do next? Am I the right guy for the fit? I mean, am I the right fit to help the family? I mean, if, if a loved one has like a younger, like a 20 year old something and she's been beat, molested or raped by, you know, 40, 50 year old men with white hair, like I may not be the right guy to walk in the room and help her. Right. But I know a lot of other people that could. So I got to figure out, am I the right guy? What's the real situation? And I'm always just listening with love. We got to take inventory, figure out what the heck's going on. Right. And then we just got to just have faith in the process because it's, it's different for people. They're, they're letting go of control a little bit. And so the interventions, it's, they're all over the board from, from how they get done, but there's a theme in the middle of the process. Any way that we do this. 
And that's why I just leave it open. Cause I, I remember one time I had a family call me five minutes in the conversation. The mother said, well, where are you going to send my loved one? I, was, I, I don't know yet. I, I don't know. Well, what do you mean? You don't know. People said you're good at this and you don't know where you're going to send my loved one. I said, well, ma'am, I don't even know the whole story yet. I need to talk to any family member or friend that's willing to talk to me and give me their perspective. And I won't really know for several days what, where we're, what we're going to suggest until I talk to everybody. So, so that's, that's what I'll bring to you is transparency and honesty. She goes, well, the last guy we talked to in the first like three or four minutes, he already told me the three places he was going to recommend. Those are the ones I, I, in the referrals. I, maybe. Uh-oh, don't say that. I do not get paid by any treatment center, just so you know, everybody. No, uh, I figured I could tell the, your heart and stuff. I was being fresh. I yeah. I don't know that that happens. Well, you're, No, it does happen. That's the thing. When people call the 1-800 number on TV a lot, what people don't understand is there's a queue in place. And all they do, whether it's a right fit or not, they just refer the next treatment center. Because mm. I have news for people. Ready? Treatment centers will just take your money because you called them. A lot of treatment centers won't make sure you're the right fit. So that's why you use someone like myself or anyone else in the book I wrote, because we're going to give you an honest direction. And sometimes, I mean, I'll talk myself out of business. Sometimes Bobby will say, well, have you ever asked your husband if he wants help? No, I just know he needs help. He's pissing me off. He's drinking too much. I said, well, why don't you ask him if he's willing to talk to someone that has no bias, no judgment to just have coffee and sometimes I'll try that approach. And if they don't meet me for coffee, we'll say, well, next week we're having a family meeting. We want you to be there. You don't show up to that. Then we show up with the troops. And it's this, we roll in and say, we could have done this over coffee like two weeks ago, buddy. So I bring some levity to the situation, but there's that. And then I just do, I do a lot of coaching with people and I don't coach people that are in active addiction. I just don't do it because there's free resources for that. There's AA, there's NA, there's CA, there's Celebrate Recovery. There's places they can go. My coaching is more involved in what do you want to do with your life now, right? And and it's tools. It is tools in early recovery, but it's like, where do you want to go? Because most addicts don't have confidence in their future. I want to let them see that there is a future for you. And we're going to do some hardcore work. We're going to look in the mirror a lot. But it's we're going to really get people moving in the right direction because there's like peer support specialists, right? Mm -hmm. That people can pay to for insurance and they can bill insurance and they can do their thing about, you know, how do you do laundry? How do you go to the grocery store? That, that's not what that's not. That's not where God's called me to be. It's more about where are we going to go together to go forward in group coaching or private coaching or I do coaching with families. And uh, so I'm more on the your feet are already wet in recovery. Where do you want to go with it? Instead of I'm fresh off the boat. I don't know what to do. Now that's the coaching I do with interventions. When people get out of treatment, I'm, I'm there for them when they get out of treatment to help them with those proper steps to go forward. Uh, but I love doing business coaching with people that are trying to grow business and say, let's get marketing strategies. Let's have fun and get creative and just expand and explode. You know? Um, so Coaching takes a bunch of different faces with me. Yeah, you are totally going to be in my three, two, one empire circle because we are so aligned. And where I think that there's a huge gap 
I didn't even tell you about this part, but the whole employment behind it is I want transitional housing on the property and they work for the institution, but they don't go home. They come out of treatment. They um, come out of these places. And you mentioned it earlier. And I think it's a really big, important point. And it hurts if you're on the receiving end of it, if you're the family, but I don't think coming out of treatment and going home to exactly what you left is the right move. And I think that that's why relapse is so hard and sustainable recovery is so hard. So I want this place where people can get the skills and not have to worry about is the rent paid, you know, doing homework, whatever all those things are, and don't have to worry about that. Cause my rule, when I went into rehab, I was like, and I embraced it and did all the things, but my rule was, this is the only time in my life I'm ever going to have 30 days dedicated just to nothing but me. And I want to give people that gift. And it sounds like that's your strategy too, and helping them rebuild. I'm a, I'm a big advocate for the business part. And I think most addicts are born salesmen, right? Like they can get whatever they want, but they figure it out. Um, so why not use the powers for good and evil? So you just, I didn't mean to go on about me, but I'm just aligned with your thinking is yeah. what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's huge. I was, uh, uh, somebody's interviewing me for a section in their book before you and I talked today. And we were talking about the transferable skills of someone with addictions when used for good can do so many amazing and powerful things going forward. We just have to build the confidence in who we are. And we have to believe in who we are. And when we believe in who we are, not defined by our past, but where we can go. And when we can see the vision of where we can go, it's like, wow. And you can hear stories like people you interview and I interview. It's people that are, have lost everything or just thrown stuff away and they, and, but they need that support. So when I talk to a family and they call me and they're just like, well, Robbie needs to do the work. It's Robbie's fault. It's Robbie. There's Robbie that Billy Carol. It's their fault that I don't need to do any work. It's I'll say, well, let's okay. I understand there's pain and let's just pause for one minute. And I'll talk to spouses sometimes and they'll say, well, this has been going on for 20 years. I said, okay, I understand there's pain in that. If we look at this though, you have also been there for 20 years. So we can't expect your loved one to go get help if you're not willing to do some of the work also. Because everyone has a part in this. And I know that's hard to hear because you want to just blame him because you're pissed. You're angry. I hear that. And the reality is that if it's been going on for 20 years, then you've both been there for 20 years, right? And they're like, yeah. And so I I walk people through that kind of holding the mirror up to the family also and just saying, let's just talk through this. So I'm asking you, are you willing to do some of the work as well? Well, what does that mean? Great question. Let's talk about that. Because honestly, if you're not willing to do any of the work and you're getting ready to spend, I don't know, whatever it is, your deductible with insurance or pay out of pocket or whatever, five grand, 10 grand, 30 grand to send them away for a month and they're going to move right back home. If you want to just write me a check for 30 grand, I'll put that money to good use. Because if you're not going to do any of the work, if you're just not going to do any of the work, there's no point in this. Because a friend of mine, Chuck Robinson, said it's kind of like this. If you send someone away to go learn French, right, and they come back and all they speak is French now, 
They don't speak English. English is just gone. They only know French and they come back into your house and they're talking to you and you're going, what are you saying? I can't understand it. Well, you didn't take the French lessons while they were gone either. Oh, I so this love person that. moves back home and it's like they're talking gibberish and you don't know what they're saying. So if if the family is willing to do the work, I have a family coach that's on my team and she works with them on the day the intervention starts to six weeks after or three months after, depending on what the family needs or wants. Kind of, I have like different packages, right, of interventions. And but that gives the family the tools they need to use because I'm coaching them through the whole intervention and giving them all the tools and lingo and things they need to tap into. And it's really funny when the family goes, well, I'll check in with them the next week and two weeks and three weeks. Well, no, I haven't been to a meeting at all yet. My schedule is too busy. I get it. But you're now expecting your loved one to do all this work and you're not willing to do anything. How do you really expect the family system to get better? I don't think it's, it's, I, one of my mentors used to say, um, you know, as we're in recovery, everybody that isn't moving forward is still stuck in our story, but we're not, we're moving ahead and we don't think that way. We don't act that way. You know, we don't want to live that way. So I really appreciate what you're doing because I've never met anyone that's focused on that piece of it. And that example about talking French, it's like talking recovery and healing the wounds. And as someone who went into treatment, I feel like I came out. So with, you know, with 30 days of, of die hard work versus even someone who goes to a meeting once or twice a week, right? Maybe that's more gradual and the family could keep up, but only if they're doing something in the background. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, I think that's part of, again, why people go back, because if it's, well, what's the point of me doing all this work if nobody's, nobody's supporting me, like we're not fixing what's broken. Yeah. That's so valuable. Wow, Rob. I like that. Do you remember the old show, um, Biggest Loser? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, it's, and I talk to people because some people think people just need to go to rehab and get better and come back. And, and some people really need that. Because, I mean, it's funny, you talk to people, they're not working. They're sitting home drinking all the time. Like, I just don't have time to go. (laughs) Like, wow, that's cool. So I said, let's think about this. Okay, let's say you wanted to lose 40 pounds. And you went to the gym once a week, met with your trainer, and did nothing in between your sessions. How long is it going to take you to lose 40 pounds? And they think about it, I go, well, I I may not ever lose the 40 pounds. I go, exactly. So you're not going to get the results you want. But when you look at the show, The Biggest Loser, they're on the farm, the fat farm, whatever, for like 30 to 60 days. And they're totally transformed. They're looking great. They're beautiful. They lost the weight. They did therapy and figured out why they ate so much and just did all that stuff, right? They're ready to go, right? But my understanding of that show is when they moved back home and the family didn't do any of their work, they don't sustain it. They're right back where they were and worse, you know, months down the road. So yeah. which, which which scenario do you want? You want to spend 30, 60 days, move back in the same environment and be right back where you were 30, 60 days later because your family didn't do any of the work? Or what if the family did the work and you moved home and it was like, dang, we, we, you know, they're talking French, they're talking whatever. And they're all in, in sync and they, they, they change legacies. They break the cycles of addiction in their history. They're not carrying on the trickle down effect of alcoholism 
or drug addiction or sexual abuse or whatever, and their lives change. So if you really want it and your desire is high enough, you can just go to AA meetings and some counseling. Yeah. I mean, it's free pretty much, you know, or you can make it really freaking hard and just continue to beat your head against the wall and not change your life at all and probably die at some point. Do you think, do you think that has to do with, as you're talking about it and I'm going, well, why wouldn't someone want to go? Do you think it's because they don't want to fix themselves or they don't want to feel the pain that they're not broken, just the addicts broken? Like, what do you think that's all about? Like why would they wouldn't go get help or treatment or something? Yeah. Uh, part of what I hear often is, well, cause, cause it wasn't my idea. Mom and dad are making me do this or my wife's making me do this. It's her idea. I don't do any, you know, it's this pride thing, okay. right? Because of relational hurt and all those kind of things as well. Um, sometimes they just feel like they can just do it on their own. I don't need help. It's all good. And some of it's fear. I mean, I remember when I got sober, uh, obviously I attempted suicide, found the rooms of recovery the next day. And one of my first thoughts was, well, I'm not going to be able to drink at my daughter's wedding. Mm. I didn't even have kids then. <laughs> we get so far ahead because the unknown, our familiar is chaos. Yeah. You know, our familiar is, well, I don't know. Well, what would recovery is going to be boring? It's not. But, but everyone's going to find out. They already know. <laughs> you know, and all these fears. And so when you start helping to overcome objections, then they realize, and, and so many addicts, I'll say this to families real quick. So many addicts are told what to do. Well, you need to go do this. Well, you need to, you need to, instead of inviting them into the process, because I'm all about bringing the bottom up to a loved one instead of letting them hit the bottom. But mm -hmm. when you, when you bring someone in the process and you allow them to make the decision on whether they get help or not, the great thing is when the family learns healthy boundaries, whether they say yes or no, they already have boundaries in place that are healthy, that are loving, and those boundaries will help your loved one get help at some point, maybe not today, but maybe a week down the road or two weeks down the road or whatever. So, so it's a process, but when you can empower someone to make their own decision, like I'm not a big fan of, all right, here we are. Shut up. Listen to the messages. You're going to treatment. If you don't, here's a trash bag. Get the hell out of the house. You're done. We're done with you. Now, is there a time and a place for that? Sure, to an extreme extent. But if the family's healthy, then we can set boundaries and say, well, like here's an example. Uh, did an intervention with a family, and they were convinced that their son and the husband would not go get help, right? You know, and it was a long process. And so, and he's violent and stuff like that. So I always take a second person with me if there's violence or stuff like that in the process. Right. And so we're sitting there and we start the intervention off and he goes, well, who's the guy sitting in the back? And I go, well, do we really need to find out? <laughs> you know? And I said, we you don't want to know who that guy is. So we go through this whole deal and he refused treatment hundred percent. You know, he was just done. He was done being married to this girl and he just refused treatment. At least that's what he was trying to show, right? And so the family held their boundaries. The, the only rule I told them was, hey, if you walk out that door, nobody in this room 
is going to answer their phone if you call them. The only guy you're going to be able to talk to is me. So we can talk now or we can talk later. But the only guy that's going to pick his phone up is Rob Lohman. And he didn't believe me. And so he left and told everyone to F off and walked out and, and he was done. And the fan, it was so hard for the family, but they did it. They held their boundaries. They didn't respond to text messages. They didn't pick up the phone. And I think it was two days later, he called. He's like, okay, fine. I guess you're the only guy that would talk to me. I said, yeah, I told you that. But if the family would have caved, All right. then it would have been a mute point. And there's one more promise they said, and they didn't do it. So families got to learn boundaries and some are really hard, but there's a method to it. And eventually we talked. I talked to him for, I don't know, it was like a week and a half or two weeks. He still didn't want to get help, but he was calling me. And the family still didn't talk to him. Now, for him, I mean, they ended up getting divorced and stuff, and it just went south and everything else. So I always stay in touch with families to hear kind of what happens. And But I'm always available. Like someone called me yesterday from an intervention two years ago, and their dad's relapsed. It's getting bad. We talked about boundaries and said, you have to do everything today to start the boundaries now because that will give them the message that you're serious. Yeah, and you got to yeah. hold to them. So people can call me six years down the road and say, hey, uh, you fell off the wagon or now my my nephew needs help or my cousin needs help. And obviously that's a whole nother intervention. It's not the same thing, but I'll gladly help a family years down the road that just calls and needs more feedback or advice and stuff like that. Yeah, there seems to be patterns, I guess, in families. But I really like what you said about making letting people make their own choices instead of feeling like their power stripped away. Right. Yeah. And and that's part of the whole other subject, but when it comes to language um, you know, you already feel like you don't have the power because of the addiction, right? You're already out of control. Don't give away whatever little amount of power in your head that you think you have. Um, versus being empowered to make the decision where you're setting the stage for what could be the rest of their life being very beautiful and fulfilling with the strategy that you're talking about. Yeah, totally. Like I said, as long as as the the family members can learn healthy boundaries and hold them, their loved one will accept help at some point. Because now the family system's changed. The, 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 The cycle's changed. It's broken. What do you mean? Mom's not calling me 10 times a day. As hard as it is for mom, if you pull back a little bit, they're going to be like, well, I'll try a different tactic. I'll go, I'll go for dad. Dad's not responding either. Mm. Or dad, he won't put money on my card or he, he really did freeze the trust. Like I can't get any money out of the trust It is frozen. Now what do I do? Yeah. Go get a job or go to rehab, get your family support. So a lot of this is just the family system and it's the family sometimes a lot harder than the loved one, you know, cause they, they don't want to lose their loved one. I get it. They don't want to, if you don't pay the phone bill, they can't call you. Right. If I, but if I don't buy them groceries, they won't eat. But if I don't pay their car insurance, they might get in a wreck and, and get, get sued. Well, they may need to go through that to get the message. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're creative. We'll find a way. If we're addicts, we want it. We'll go get it. So, yeah. So true. Well, Rob, we 
have been going a very long time. Is there any, and, and I probably could go on forever, but is there anything else that you want to get in before we go? I just say that if, if, if you're asking the question, if you have a problem or your loved one has a problem, they probably do. If you don't feel like you're an addict, ask yourself the question, do I have a dependency on substances or gambling or something? If you have a dependency, maybe it's something to look at today and reach out for help. I mean, reach out to Bobby. She's got plenty of resources and just connect. But it starts with lowering our pride, being humble enough to ask for help. Because if not, you might get that DUI. Your wife or husband might just leave you. Your kids may never talk to you again because you won't change your behavior. And um, you just got to do something different today. So do something different. Your bottom can be right now. Today in this moment could be the bottom. You don't have to go any further down. But you got to reach out for help. So reach out to Bobby. Reach out to me. Reach out to your local crisis center. Go to a hospital. Check in for a detox. Just do something different. Love it. Thanks so much, Rob, for being here. I learned some stuff. Uh, Didn't even know I was going to get like celebrate recovery as a bonus and some of the other topics we covered. So I appreciate your wisdom and all the work that you're doing. Yeah. Keep up the good work. God bless you. And uh, and, um, yeah, don't stop.